Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick. I'm in for Julia Chatterley today, and this is First Move. And here's your need to know. Heading onto the market... Robinhood set for a $32 billion IPO. Didi Denial. The Chinese firm denies rumors it's going to go private just weeks after its IPO. And vaccine mandate. Corporate America tells employees to get vaccinated if they want to work. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us. We're going to take you live to the NASDAQ for the launch of the eagerly awaited Robinhood IPO in just a moment. But first, some breaking economic data. New numbers showing the U.S. economy expanding at a 6.5 percent annual rate in the second quarter. That's weaker than expected. We were looking for growth to top 8 percent. The numbers are sure to raise fears that U.S. growth may have stalled in recent months. The data could also impact the Fed's thinking on stimulus. The Fed saying in its policy statement Wednesday that it's getting closer to making a decision on whether to cut bond purchases. Growth concerns could force the Fed to delay the start of tapering. Lots for global investors to take in. U.S. futures looking higher overall right now. Europe is rising for a second day as Volkswagen reports record results. Royal Dutch Shell and Airbus are out with market-friendly earnings, too. Asia finished higher with the Hang Seng jumping 3 percent as Beijing attempts to ease investors' fears over its recent tech crackdown. A busy day here on First Move. Let's get right to the drivers. Let's get to that Robinhood IPO, and Claire Sebastian joins me from the NASDAQ. Claire, great to see you. Um, I know that, listen, this is a hyped-up um, IPO, um, but it looks like it's priced at the low end of the spectrum. Yeah, Alison, the, uh, the range was 38 to, to $42. It's come in uh, pricing last night at $38 a share. That will give Robinhood a valuation of about 32 billion dollars. So a significant valuation uh, for this fairly young company uh, with such explosive growth when it comes to the retail trading market. But that could signal some nervousness among investors around some regulatory issues that the company has had, perhaps uh, about that high valuation. So it'll be interesting to see uh, as they build the order book over the course of the morning uh, how that shakes out. We expect uh, that, that trading will take a few hours to start opening here at the, at the Nasdaq, expecting it around lunchtime. So we're going to watch as that, as that order book builds. But this is, of course, the company that has really disrupted uh, the market for retail trading, introduced the model of zero commission uh, trading uh, for for retail traders. And really other people have followed that. And today, Alison, they are disrupting the IPO market as well. They are allocating up to 35% of these shares to retail traders through the IPO access feature uh, on their app. That could mean more volatility uh, as this stock opens today, but it really will be a test case for, for the future as to whether more companies Companies start to do this. 
Yeah, Claire, and you mentioned um, the, the retail investors coming in. What do you think that's going to do to the price of the stock without having the institutional investors in there? Yeah, so they still will have the institutional investors in there. The, the allocation for retail investors through the app is said to be uh, between 20 and 35%. Look, it could lead to more volatility. I think, uh, you know, there could be some enthusiasm among the retail investors for this, this stock, given the impact it's have on bringing new entrants into the market. The explosive growth we've seen of this company, Alison, uh, the revenues were up 245% last year, up more than 300% just in the first quarter uh, of this year alone. They have 18 million funded accounts. But as I said, there is some nervousness around this stock. They have seen some regulatory issues leading up to this, an investigation into the CEO and why uh, he might not be registered with uh, with FINRA. There's, there's a probe into trades by employees around the time of the, the GameStop uh, stock restrictions in January, that meme stock frenzy. And it's not just those individual issues. The business model itself is being looked at by the SEC. 81% of this company's revenues comes from something called payment for order flow, where they out those retail orders to wholesalers, so essentially bypassing the market. The SEC chairman, Gary Gensler, uh, has been very vocal about that. Have a listen, Alison, to what he said about this in May. It's sort of like an iceberg, but most of the iceberg is below the surface. The costs are below the surface. Uh, payment for order flow is one of the costs. The data uh, that someone, someone else in the market gets enough data to trade that market better for them and a little less well for everybody else. So his point being that these are zero commission, but not free apps, just like we've seen uh, with other sort of Silicon Valley companies like Facebook, consumers uh, and customers are paying with their data. Gary Gensler worries that this creates conflicts of interest, that it needs to concentration in the markets. And this is a risk for Robinhood, considering that so much of their revenues comes from this business model, Alison. Okay, Claire Sebastian, live for us from the NASDAQ. Thanks. Chinese ride-hailing company Didi has denied that it's planning to go private just weeks after its U.S. IPO. The Wall Street Journal reported earlier that Didi was considering delisting again to appease the Chinese authorities. Beijing has been making life hard for Didi ever since it listed shares on the NYSE last month. Paula Monica joins me live now. So we have this report. Now Didi is denying it. Yeah, Didi's saying it is not true that they are not looking to go private. I think investors are still dubious. Uh, the stock is up uh, nearly 20% pre-market here in the United States. That is down from the levels it hit earlier. But I think, Allison, that because of all of the controversy with this company, the cybersecurity review that is taking place now that you know came into effect just right after they went public, You've seen how it has impacted DD's shares. They went public at 14. They went up uh, a little bit on their first day of trading, but they have since tumbled sharply, uh, you know, down below $10 a share. Although with uh, pre-market action, they might get back above, you know, double digits uh, this morning. But still, it's a colossal flop for this IPO, and I think it's leading a lot of people to wonder. You know, there are many Chinese stocks that trade in the U.S. that investors are skeptical of now because of these regulatory concerns. Yeah, not just investors skeptical, but I would imagine Chinese companies skeptical to even try to list on U.S. exchanges now, right? Exactly. I think you might see a bit of a slowdown in companies that had been thinking about a U.S. IPO and they will consider whether or not they could should trade maybe in Hong Kong or Europe or other international markets instead. And Allison, I think 
With Didi, what remains to be seen is if the reports are true, despite Didi's denial, and they eventually do go private, could they go public again in Hong Kong, maybe in a more favorable way that Chinese regulators would approve? I think that this is a big factor here, that Beijing is not just trying to crack down on potential abuses by some of these tech companies, because again, it's a cybersecurity review. I think China wants to keep a lot of their homegrown tech companies closer to home and exert more control that way. Yeah, they want to keep those companies closer to home, but those companies want to venture out. Interesting conflict. Thanks for breaking all that down for us, Paula Monica. Facebook won't be friending Apple CEO Tim Cook anytime soon. The social media giant warning that its growth could slow due to Apple's new privacy rules. The announcement overshadowing another strong quarter for growth for Mark Zuckerberg and company. Matt Egan joins me live now. Matt, take us through the earnings and what popped out for you. Well, Allison, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Tim Cook weren't exactly BFFs uh, before this earnings report, and, and, and the latest numbers are, are not going to, uh, to help that, that relationship. Um, now, the actual numbers that Facebook reported were, were really strong. I mean, profit doubled, blew away estimates, revenue beat estimates by more than a billion dollars. It was Facebook's fastest growth since 2016. But the company is warning of slower growth ahead, and the CFO specifically pointed to some app rules that were instituted by Apple in April. Now, these new changes require users to give explicit permission for apps to track and sell personal data to advertisers. That includes everything from personal health information to age and location and spending habits. Now, that, of course, would not be good news for uh, Facebook, which makes most of its revenue from advertising. And Facebook has said that if a lot of users end up opting out, uh, that its business could suffer. Uh, another key factor, another key headwind that Apple cited was regulation. We know that uh, Facebook is in the crosshairs of Washington, both regulators and lawmakers on the antitrust front. So for those two reasons, that's why Wall Street is wondering how, fat, how long Facebook can keep up this rapid growth. Yeah, and during the conference call with um, analyst CEO Mark Zuckerberg, he also talked about the company's goals uh, to help develop the metaverse, which he described as, and I'm quoting here, a virtual environment where you can be present with people in digital spaces. Can you translate that for us, Matt? Yeah, well, you, you can accuse uh, Mark Zuckerberg of not trying to evolve with the times. He actually mentioned Metaverse 20 times during the earnings call, which has got to be a record. And, you know, if you're not familiar with the Metaverse, what it is, it's, it's a set of virtual and augmented reality technologies. And the goal would be to let people interact in 3D in a virtual setting online. If it sounds futuristic, I, I guess that's because it, it is. Now, what was really interesting is that Zuckerberg said during the uh, earnings call that he thinks in the, in the coming years, people will transition from seeing Facebook as a primarily as a social media company to seeing it as a metaverse company. So there you go, Allison. Uh, <laughs> coming soon, Facebook will be, I guess, the world's largest metaverse company. And he sees that as a revenue driver, I'm assuming. Absolutely. And, and it is connected to uh, Facebook's big bet on Oculus virtual reality. Um, right. it, it is a way for him to incorporate all of that. And, and presumably advertising would also play a role in the metaverse. OK, thank you, Matt Egan, for translating all of that.
Thank you. And more major businesses in the U.S. mandating COVID-19 vaccinations for employees as the highly contagious Delta variant continues to spread. Google and Facebook are among the companies that now require vaccinations. Christine Romans joins me now with more. Christine, great to see you. You know, it was interesting to see how this sort of built up. We didn't hear anything from companies. And now as we get closer to sort of September and August, when companies were having people back, we're seeing the momentum build. What companies are speaking out and saying you must be vaccinated before you walk in our offices? So for so many months, we've been hearing companies say they strongly encouraged their employees to get the vaccine, the safe and effective vaccine. And now you're to this point where they're looking at actually returning people to the workplace, to the office space, and they want to make sure that their workers are vaccinated. So it's a real change in tone from companies, a real leadership here. And a few reasons here. You're seeing it from Silicon Valley. Even as they're pushing back their return to the office dates because of the Delta variant, they are saying, when you come back, you must be vaccinated. Also, Wall Street, those offices have been filling up for weeks now. They are saying you must be vaccinated. And in many cases saying clients and customers must be vaccinated if they are on the premises uh, as well. And one of the big drivers here is the Delta variant. There are big concerns that this pool of unvaccinated, uh, the unvaccinated public is spreading these strains and uh, these strains are evolving in the public and that will hold back the recovery. That's not good for business. I'll say something else, too. I've been talking to human resources professionals. And Allison, um, Johnny Taylor from the Society of Human Resource Management tells me that almost 70 percent of employees they survey say they want vaccine mandates. This is something employees want. There is patience wearing thin on the vaccine hesitant. This I read something scary on Facebook. I don't want to get the shot. It's not going to fly anymore, especially as these businesses are starting to reopen. Now, there is mitigation in some cases. You have Disneyland and Disney World are requiring masks indoors. So they're not requiring vaccinations, but they're saying if you are here, you must be wearing a mask indoors. Apple is requiring mitigation masks to be worn in all of its stores. Uh, MGM Grand, that is the big casino company, hotel company. Its CEO is begging its employees to get the vaccine. They're having vaccine pop ups. It's not a mandate. But they're begging to get the vaccine. And he points out, look, we could have social distancing and capacity requirements if more people don't get the vaccine. That hurts business. That hurts jobs. So, again, it's so important. The vaccine is the armor for the American public, for the global public to be able to have an economy that recovers. How ready do you think are companies to let employees go who are unwilling to be vaccinated? I give you case in point. I, I, I had this news alert yesterday. The Durst organization, which is a real estate development company, yeah. basically said to its employees, you will be fired if you are not vaccinated after Labor Day and you think you're going to walk into our offices. Yeah. And that is a really telling, telling statement from a company. We haven't see the, seen the mass firings Yet we know that these companies say that they will have uh, they will have exemptions for health and for religious reasons. I will point out there are very very rare religious exemptions for vaccines in general. So that's going to be hard, I think, for many employee employees to try um, to prove. The question will be: Is it a true mandate? Is it a requirement with mitigation? Uh, will these companies be able to enforce it? That.
that's the next part of the story that will come later. I know that Union Square Hospitality CEO Danny Meyer this morning said um, they're requiring all of their employees to be vaccinated. They're giving them 45 days notice here if they would like to accept their position. That's sort of how they've um, they've they've uh, they've cast it as you can keep working here if within 45 days you are vaccinated. And he points out that you can't really go back to normal in the restaurant industry or in the hospitality industry if both uh, customers and employees aren't vaccinated. That's how you keep restaurants full and casinos full, right? So this is an economic imperative for for many of them. It's about uh, good business here. And a reminder, the vaccines are safe and effective. There's a lot of terrible misinformation out there. Companies have been very, very patient with the vaccine hesitant. That patience is gone. Yeah, we're seeing that now with the momentum of the number of companies stepping forward now. Christine Romans, thanks for breaking all that down. You're welcome. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. Breaking news out of Tokyo, American Sunisa Lee just won an historic gold medal in the women's all-around gymnastics competition today. That seals a record, equaling sixth victory in the event for the U.S. team. CNN's Selena Wang joins me now live from Tokyo. Great to see you. Great to be with you, Allison. Talk about an historic win. Talk about grace under pressure for Suni Lee after Simone Biles was out citing mental health issues. She really stepped up to the plate, securing gold for the United States. And she was also the first Hmong American to be part of a U.S. Olympic team. An incredibly inspiring story from her, especially after a year of many, many setbacks from Suni Lee, including an injury. But there were also some scares today in Olympic news, especially for the Australian track and field team team in which 54 members of that team were briefly in quarantine after three members of that team had come into contact with a U.S. track and field athlete who had tested positive for COVID-19. We know that U.S. pole vaulter Sam Kendricks is out of the game after testing positive for COVID-19. Now, after those three members who were fully vaccinated tested negative, the entire team is now in the clear. But it did send shockwaves throughout the track and field athletic community. And it was just a reminder of how precarious these games are, the knock-on effects that just one positive COVID-19 test can have. Now, a big miss with Sam Kendricks out is a duel that people were waiting to see, to see him go head-to-head with Armand Duplantis, who is a world record holder. Take a listen to what Armand Duplantis had to say about Sam Kendricks testing positive. I've been super lucky just not to have come in contact with him, Lightfoot, Houston, or anybody. So I think... All of the pole vaulters are pretty, pretty spooked out right now. I, I was, I mean, I was gonna possibly meet up with Sam yesterday, but I got a phone call from Desiree, my girlfriend, and then I ended up not meeting up with them. So, you know, that was a, I think that was a, that was a pretty lucky, lucky dodge right there. And um, yeah, so right now I've been good, and so we're all pretty spooked out right now. There are now at least 198 COVID-19 cases in Tokyo, in Japan, linked to these Tokyo games. And this is as COVID-19 cases are surging in the host city, reporting three straight days of record high COVID-19 cases, surpassing 3,800 on Thursday. And the Japan Medical Association has put out an emergency statement saying that the medical system could reach the point of collapse if infections continue to increase. Allison. Okay, CNN, Selena Wang in Tokyo. Thank you. Other parts of Asia are seeing new coronavirus infections. Beijing is reporting two new COVID cases, the first to be reported in the Chinese capital in nearly six months following an outbreak in, the eastern, in the, one of its eastern cities. Cases are also rising in Vietnam and Myanmar.
While in Thailand, COVID patients are being sent by train to their hometowns as hospitals in Bangkok run out of beds. You're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, live from New York, where it's looking like a mostly higher start to the trading day, despite a weaker-than-expected read on second-quarter U.S. GDP. The Dow is set to outperform in the early action. Blue-chip investors heartened by news that Congress will soon begin debate on a multi-billion-dollar U.S. infrastructure bill. Lots of political hurdles, though, remain. But passage of it would mean a fresh shot of fiscal stimulus at a time when the Fed is mulling a cut to monetary support. Ford, one of the big gainers in the pre-market after reporting a surprise second-quarter profit. The carmaker also raising its full-year guidance and saying the supply bottlenecks that have crimped auto production are easing. Robinhood making its much-anticipated public debut today after raising about $2 billion in its initial public offering. Joining us now is Bradley Tusk. He's the founder and CEO of Tusk Holdings. Great to have you with us on this on this great day for, for Robinhood, at least. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I want to get your take because Robinhood actually pricing on the lower end of the spectrum at $38 a share. Uh, what do you think about that? You know, look, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a venture capitalist. And while everyone tries to be relatively precise and methodological about valuations, um, if, if you look at private sector valuations, it's some math and it's some pixie dust, right? To a certain extent, it is based on uh, what a VC thinks she or he needs to bid to win. Um, it is based on lots of other factors purely than just sort of what the economics may dictate. And so when you're trying to decide whether or not a company that was private going public is now all of a sudden kind of meeting expectations because it's trading at the lower end of the range, the, the, the range was kind of variable and, and, and not that scientifically sort of done in the first place. And that's true for all uh, private tech companies that, that, that IPO. So I wouldn't worry much about it. Now, your firm backed Coinbase, which went public in April, and now Robinhood is having its moment in the spotlight, which is looking to democratize trading and is seen as a formidable competitor to Coinbase. How do you see the, the, um, the comparisons between the two? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that they're similar in the sense that they're both bringing access to the markets, different types of markets, but still to the markets, um, to retail investors, right? And part of the overall fight, whether it's Coinbase or Robinhood or anything else interactive, is, you know, the Internet has really opened up the world in a lot of ways. You know, you and I are talking uh, online right now. And, and as a result, a lot more people are going to have access um, I think in some ways that is the democratization that these companies are talking about, and that's really good. At the same time, it creates all kinds of new regulatory headaches that hadn't existed before. Um, but I think ultimately it, it's a good thing. And both companies are going to go through growing pains, and FINRA and the other regulators are going to have to figure out sort of how to do this in an intelligent way. But fundamentally, one, I, I think both companies are adding real value to the marketplace. And two, as an investor in Coinbase, I, I don't see any particular problem with Robinhood also succeeding. Now, there were some investors who felt wronged by Robinhood's decision to restrict trading in some securities during the GameStop frenzy that who can forget. Um, you were quoted as actually saying that that movement uh, exposing short sellers may not have been possible without Robinhood in the first place. And that movement may actually turn against Robinhood. And that could put some downward pressure on the stock when they do go public. Do you still feel the same way? Could we see this kind of cruel twist of fate? 
Yeah, there could be some revenge selling or short selling or something like that. That's that's definitely possible. Um, and look, you, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. If, if you're going to run a run a brokerage effectively based on kind of memes and public sentiment, um, you're going to ride that wave up and you're going to ride that wave down. So I, I think there will be some potential ramifications for Robinhood. Um, but but overall, I, I, the underlying question is, will, will payment for order flow go away or not? If you think it's going to go away, then I think it's hard to invest in Robinhood because that's effectively where so much of their revenue comes from. Uh, if you think that it will be fine, uh, then there's no reason, if you like Robinhood as a company, not to invest in it. Um, I do think politically speaking, at least, it's not going to go anywhere simply because uh, if you were to get rid of uh, PFOF, then then you would have to allow or companies like Robinhood to start charging uh, feeds again, and I think that no politician wants to be blamed for that. Quick final question for you. Do you have any concerns at all about Robinhood and its role in the gamification of trading? No. I mean, I think that, look, Robinhood has to be regulated just like any other brokerage is regulated. And so, but, but with that said, because they're coming up with sort of new ways to reach consumers, reach investors, uh, get them interested in things, that's a good thing. Um, it, it may be that certain gamification or memes cause more problems that, 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 than they solve, and we should regulate those. But overall, you know, bringing more people into the process and getting them interested in it and making it less complicated, uh, I think is a good thing. Okay, Bradley Tusk, CEO of Tusk Holdings. Great to have your perspective today. Thanks for coming on the show. Great. Thank you for having me. And we'll be back after the break. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday, uh, a big day for the U.S. IPO market as Robinhood goes public on the Nasdaq. More on that later in the show. For now, U.S. stocks have opened mostly higher despite a weaker than expected read on second quarter U.S. GDP. The U.S. economy growing at a six and a half percent annual rate in the spring. We were expecting growth of over eight percent. Major tech earnings are also in focus. Facebook shares are lower after warning that growth could slow later this year. Amazon reports results after the closing bell today. Shares of Didi Global are sharply higher in early trading, despite denials from the company that it's thinking about going private. But Uber is pulling back sharply. Reports say SoftBank may be forced to sell a big chunk of its Uber stake to cover its losses after Didi's recent sell-off. And shares of EV firm Nikola are slumping as well. U.S. prosecutors have charged the company's founder and former chairman for allegedly making false statements about the firm. There are encouraging signs in the U.K. New coronavirus cases there are plunging just a few weeks after an alarming spike in the numbers driven by the Delta variant. Phil Black has more. In the first week of England's hands-off, mostly unrestricted policy of living with the coronavirus, something extraordinary has happened. The UK's growing wave of cases has suddenly, unexpectedly fallen away. The drop has been quick and dramatic. Compared to the previous week, the total number of confirmed cases is down 36%. Scientists admit no one saw this coming. It's not something that I expected or predicted. I think it's a surprise to a lot of people to see something that's um, that's come down this quickly, uh, this much in synchrony. So they only have theories on why this is happening. The end of the European soccer championships means no more big emotional crowds. A recent stretch of good weather encouraged people to stay outside. 
Schools are out for summer, closing what some scientists believe is a significant environment for transmission. Awareness of surging cases may have inspired more cautious behaviour. And there's also the possibility vast numbers of people are still being infected. They're just not following up with tests because they don't want to cancel plans and stay at home. So the issue is, is what we're seeing in terms of a reduction in cases a true reflection of the community levels of infection. Scientists feel confident on one point. Vaccines are helping, but it's too soon to attribute the drop to herd immunity. We need to remember only 55% of our population are fully vaccinated. The rest are either partially vaccinated or not vaccinated at all. The delay between infection and symptomatic illness means the figures don't yet reflect the consequences of England throwing away its pandemic rules on July 19th. It is very, very important that uh, we, we don't allow ourselves to run away with uh, premature uh, conclusions about this. But the sudden changes are fueling hope. The UK will not experience the grim, difficult summer many predicted. And our thanks to Phil Black for that. Shares in online retailer Overstock are down sharply at the open. The home furnishings company reported second quarter revenue growth as the e-commerce sales continued, uh, even as lockdowns lifted. The company says it expects demand to remain strong. Joining me is Jonathan Johnson. He's the CEO of Overstock. Great to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Looks like you had a solid quarter. Walk us through what worked for Overstock. Well, we did have a great quarter, and it was a comparing against our toughest quarter, best quarter in the history of the company from the last year. Uh, demand continued to be high, particularly uh, in the outdoor and patio furniture areas. As people try and expand their living areas beyond the four walls of their home to the four corners of their property, uh, there's still a lot of demand in the furniture space, and we had a great quarter. How sustainable, though, is this momentum? I mean, I get that everybody was home during the pandemic. They're, you know, they, they bought their furniture, they upgraded their desks. All that stuff is done. So will they go out and buy more things? Plus, you've got the intense competition from, you know, Amazon, Wayfair, Walmart and Target. Well, uh, great questions. We are taking market share uh, from each of those. Uh, we think we'll continue to grow. We think there are macroeconomic trends uh, that are in our favor as the home furnishings purchases shift from brick and mortar to online. We also think that the great shuffling of the American workforce as people move to the suburbs and the exurbs uh, to work from home, uh, that strong housing starts, all of these bode well for the home furnishing business, which is our business as we provide dream homes for all. I know retailers across the board uh, are being hit by supply chain disruptions and having to raise prices. What are you encountering in that realm? Is, is Overstock having the same issues? Uh, there's no question uh, that supply chain uh, is difficult. Labor costs are up, uh, uh, product raw materials are up. Uh, we've been able to either uh, absorb or have our suppliers absorb most of that. We do. We have had to pass a little bit along to our customers, but because we have such a distributed network of suppliers, over 3,000 suppliers, uh, we've been able to keep costs down for the most part, uh, and our suppliers uh, have been able to move to uh, less expensive manufacturing. They're a very savvy group. 
that's helped us uh, avoid some of the troubles uh, that others have had as supply chains have been congested. Okay, switching switching gears a little bit to T Zero, which is your blockchain crypto business, um, out, which is outsourced to a venture capital firm. Uh, I'm curious if T Zero is being shopped around in search of the right buyer. Well, uh, T Zero has disclosed that it's trying to raise capital. It would love to find a strategic uh, investor. We think the T Zero business is promising, um, uh, and. Uh, you know, if the right buyer came, I guess anything and everything is for sale. But today, uh, it's running well and looking for strategic investment, not a purchaser. Is Overstock's overall plan, though, to eventually exit its blockchain-related investments? Well, we have 21 investments. We've uh, created a limited partnership, and we've got a great venture capitalist, Pelion Venture Partners, managing those. Like you know, all venture investments, ultimately, you'd like to see uh, them have a payoff, an exit of one sort or another. Uh, we're letting Pelion determine uh, what routes of uh, financial events is best for each of those 21 uh, companies in the portfolio. Now, I know you've been CEO uh, for around two years now. You came in during difficult times. Um, you cut ties with your founder. How difficult was that and what changes have you made? Well, uh, I have been in the CEO seat for two years. Uh, We've become more focused on our e-commerce business. Our e-commerce business is more focused on the home furnishing and furniture market. Uh, We've limited the number of initiatives and projects we're working on. When I took over, we had 27. Having 27 initiatives is almost like having none. Uh, we have four that we work on now that we think, you know, have great promise. I think our focus is what got us in a position that when the pandemic hit, the pandemic was a tailwind instead of a cross or a headwind for our business. We remain focused. And as we lean more in to the home furnishings market, I think you'll see us continue to grow and take market share. All right, John, Jonathan Johnson, CEO of Overstock. Grateful for your time today. Thank you. Thanks so much. Hope, hope to talk to you again. Me too. And you're watching First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. Stay with us. Before the pandemic, heat stroke was the biggest risk to athletes. The Olympics are held during the hottest time of the year in Japan, and temperatures are soaring to record levels. CNN's Selena Wang has more. Sweaty, hot, and humid. That's a Tokyo summer. Before the pandemic, heat stroke was the biggest health risk for the Tokyo Games, held during the hottest time of year in Japan. Natsue Koikawa knows the risks of heat stroke all too well. A former professional runner, she passed out during a 1995 marathon in Japan and almost died. It took her more than a year and a half to recover, and she never returned to a major marathon race again. Now a professor and track coach at Juntendo University, she's been researching the dangers of competing in the heat. Heat stroke can happen to anyone, and it's a very common cause of death. It may be extremely difficult for athletes to give up competing in the middle of the game because the athletes are representing their country on the stage of their dreams. But I tell athletes that having the courage to quit is the best way to prevent heat stroke. 
Back in 1964, the Tokyo Games were actually held in October in order to beat the heat, and it's only gotten hotter since then. According to a report from the British Association for Sustainable Sport, temperatures in Japan have increased three times as fast as the world average since 1900. When you take into account not only the temperature but also humidity, I would say that a Tokyo summer is the worst in the history of the Olympic Games. In a statement to CNN, the IOC said it provides shade and water supplies at venues because the health of athletes is, quote, at the heart of our concerns. Still, we have already seen athletes struggle under the sun during these games, with Russian archer Svetlana Gombueva being treated for heat exhaustion. A lot of the competition schedule has been built where possible, depending on the, on the sport, to, uh, to accommodate the, the will avoid the hottest parts of the day, but that's not possible with every sport. On Wednesday, Russian tennis player Daniil Medvedev was visibly struggling. When the umpire asked if he could continue, he replied, I'm a fighter, I will finish the match, but I can die. Later in comments posted by Tokyo 2020, he added, I couldn't breathe properly. I think that was the most humid day we have had so far. Later that day, Spain's Paula Bedosa retired from her match with heat stroke. She had to be escorted off the court in a wheelchair. In response, the International Tennis Federation said that matches will now begin later in the day due to these weather conditions. But Yokohari says that isn't enough. Having Olympic Games in midsummer in Tokyo is not something that you should do. And uh, we should postpone it until like October or November. But in the future, it might not just be Tokyo. According to a commentary published in The Lancet, by 2085, the number of large cities that would be considered low risk to hold the Olympics in summer months would be extremely limited. In the meantime, Koikawa says athletes must stop if they feel the onset of heat stroke, as it's better to put their Olympic dreams rather than their lives on the line. Selena Wang, CNN, Tokyo. Recent public demonstrations against the Cuban regime have provoked a harsh crackdown of alleged dissidents. Among those detained, tried, and even sentenced, people who uploaded video of the July 11th protest to social media. CNN's Patrick Oppmann has more from Havana. When the largest protest since Fidel Castro's revolution swept Cuba, the Cuban government quickly struck back, carrying out mass arrests. Some protesters were forcibly detained as they chanted Patria y Vida, or Homeland in Life, the song that has become the anthem of frustration with the communist state. One of those arrested was photographer Agnello Troya, who filmed part of the music video for Patria y Vida in Havana. Less than two weeks after the protests, Troya was tried, convicted, and sentenced to a year in prison. His mother says he told the court he did nothing wrong. He said, how is this just when I haven't even seen a lawyer and I'm innocent, he says. Immediately, one of the police in civilian clothes came and handcuffed him. I said, my love, be calm, you're not alone. The Cuban government refuses to say how many people have been arrested or face trial for taking part in the unprecedented protests. An activist group put the number at almost 700. The government maintains those arrested are detained for attacking police like in this video where protesters pelt cars with rocks. And not just for challenging the rule of the Communist Party, the only political party allowed on the island. Having different opinions, including political ones, doesn't constitute a crime, he says. Thinking differently 
questioning what's going on. To demonstrate is not a crime, it's a right. But on the streets of Cuba, elite special forces commandos, known as the Black Berets, were recently placed on the sanctions list by the Biden administration for alleged acts of repression prevent further protests from breaking out. Many of the relatives of the people who were arrested would not talk to us on camera. They were too afraid. But some did tell us that their loved ones had done nothing other than peacefully demonstrate or simply record and upload videos of the historic protests as they took place. Odette Hernandez was arrested days after the protests, her relatives say, for posting this video of the demonstrations to Facebook that have now been viewed over 100,000 times. Among the charges she and her husband face is instigation of delinquency. Odette's cousin spoke to several people who were around Odette during the protests and told us their accounts from his home in Paris. They weren't violent. They didn't throw rocks at anyone, he says. Then special troops came to get them at their home, a commando unit with many police. Many of Cuba's top artists have criticized the government crackdown and called for an amnesty for nonviolent protesters. Amidst the mass trials, some signs of leniency as a day after we visited his home, photographer Anielo Troya was released on house arrest while awaiting appeal. The government here, though, says it has only just begun to prosecute those who broke the law as all of Cuba seemingly holds its breath and waits to see what comes next. Patrick Gottman, CNN Havana. Popular trading app Robinhood making its public debut today. It will soon be selling its own stock on Wall Street. We've got a live report from the Nasdaq coming up. Robinhood has made its market debut under the ticker symbol Hood. Claire Sebastian is back with us live from the Nasdaq. Claire, so do you know when uh, Robinhood will hit the market or when we'll start getting indications? Yeah, Alison, so here at the Nasdaq, IPOs are actually not eligible to start trading before 10 a.m. Uh, we've been told that it could take a couple of hours Beyond that, the uh, the underwriters and the officials here at the Nasdaq have to sort of build the order book, match buy and sell orders and come up with a price that they think will ensure minimum volatility when it starts opening. But we are hearing from the Nasdaq that the syndicate, as it's called, is broken. That, that indicates that they have enough uh, orders to cover the allocation. They said, we're good to go. So, so that should mean that they can start trading as planned. Uh, but of course, it can still take some time uh, to build up that order book. This is, of course, a really interesting IPO, not just because of the disruptive nature of the company itself, the way it sort of brought the zero commission model to, to, to all different kinds of, uh, of brokerages, bringing retail investors into Wall Street. But because they intend to sort of disrupt the IPO model itself, they, they, they said before this that they want to allocate between 20 and 35 percent to retail investors. That is very different from usual. Uh, IPOs are usually reserved for the sort of institutional investors, the banks, because uh, that ensures minimum volatility. It's much easier for the companies listing. This is something that Robinhood is trying to stay true to its mission of democratizing finance. I think this will be a test case, Alison, as to whether you can democratize IPOs. Yeah, but amid all the pomp and circumstance, there's a lot of litigation hanging over this company. There are regulatory risks as well, right? Yes, this is something that has really sort of come to a head in the in the past week. It was just a month ago that, that FINRA, the Wall Street regulator, slapped them with a record fine for, for, for mislead, giving misleading information to customers. On top of that, we see in the past week that uh, they're investigating whether, whether CEO Vlad Tenev should actually be registered with FINRA, something that's often required of CEOs uh, of broker-dealers. They're also looking into trades by employees around the time uh, of the meme stock frenzy, the meme stock frenzy back in January when, when Robinhood put those restrictions 
restrictions, there's very controversial restrictions on trading uh, in, in GameStop stock. So, so these are headaches for Robinhood. That, along with the fact that the SEC is looking into their business model as a whole, 81% of this company's revenue comes from what's called as payment for order flow, where they route these retail orders to wholesalers, to market makers on Wall Street, who then pay them a fee. Uh, this is something that, that's highly controversial. The SEC worries it leads to market concentration, that it can lead to conflicts of interest. They could end up cracking down on that. That is a major risk for Robin Hood, but still a great deal of excitement here at the NASDAQ this morning, Alison. Yeah, but even with all the headaches, Vlad Tenef, the CEO of the company, becoming a billionaire if this thing goes even at $38 a share. Claire Sebastian, thanks so much. And coming up on Connect the World, Julia Chatterley will be speaking with the CEO of Robin Hood, Vlad Tenev. So don't miss the interview. Great Britain's Tom Dean is getting used to life as a double Olympic champion just after, months after battling COVID-19, not once, but twice. It's been quite a journey for the 21-year-old to success. And his, fa- his family back at home certainly enjoyed their moment this week. Tom has been speaking to CNN's Will Ripley in Tokyo. I cannot stop watching that video. My flatmates showed me it when I got in off the race and, you know, they were welling up watching it. I was welling up watching it. You know, I saw all my family and friends there. It just makes me so emotional knowing that that's the kind of support I've got behind me. It's, it's a real honour and hopefully I've done all the people that couldn't be out here proud. Did you think that this was going to happen, like, six months ago, a year ago? Six months ago, definitely not. Six days ago, I would have been questioning it if you had asked me this. Um, I mean, when I was ill with COVID, then not, uh, you know, I would have thought you were crazy if you told me this was going to happen. What did COVID feel like the first time versus the second time? Um, the first time wasn't terrible. I was more frustrated about the isolation and the 10 days out of the pool. Uh, the second time was really tough. The second time I was really ill for quite a long period of time, coughing, wheezing, thinking how am I going to get back into training. Uh, my heart rate was high, you know, it was all the signs that an athlete doesn't want to be diagnosed with. It's an athlete's worst nightmare, especially during the Olympic year, so I'm glad I was able to come back from it. What tips? Could you offer others to just be able to focus, but also stay mentally fit as well? Yeah, I think it was kind of a perfect storm of awful things because I couldn't train, I couldn't leave my flat, and I was really ill. It's hard, and fortunately enough, we've got a psychologist help at Bath, and British Swimming have provided a lot of support for us, and they know how important mental health is now. My coach is very much aware of that. Um, but I think just having faith in the work you've done in the past and knowing that you can come back from this and... You know, you, you may feel awful when you get back in the water initially, but you will build back into it. And, you know, you've put in the hours in the past and, and that will be able to carry you through. That's it for the show. I'm Alison Kosick. Thanks for watching. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 